Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Zach Cooper. Zach is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a lecturer at Princeton University, and a partner with Armitage International. I may have screwed up the pronunciation on that, depending on what side of the Atlantic we're on. So, so we were right before we went live, we were talking about how serendipitous the timing is here to have you on because as we speak, the Camp David summit with Japan, South Korea, and the US is occurring. I was doing a little bit of homework. I mean, I knew it was happening. It wasn't really on my radar, but would love to get some context and kind of the state of play before, which I didn't realize those three countries have never had an independent diplomatic meeting just with the three of them outside of some larger kind of UN or, or G20 type summit situations. So could you maybe give us some historical context of why it's such a momentous occasion that we're seeing yeah, today? Absolutely. Well, first, Brian, thanks for having me on. Great to get a chance to chat with you. Yeah, it really is a fascinating moment in time watching Japan and Korea finally try and move past some of their historical differences. And I don't want to suggest that they're all the way past them, but this really goes back about 100 years, right, to Japan's invasion of Manchuria. And it held parts of what is now Korea and China for decades. And it was a pretty brutal reign. Now, that is a long time ago, right? And the US and Japan have had their own differences going back to World War II, and we've gotten past those and, and frankly got past them pretty quickly in the Cold War. But Japan and Korea never really had that same forcing function like Japan and the U.S. did with the Soviet threat, because Japan and Korea just didn't have to cooperate together in the same way. So we've had a number of efforts to try and fix the Japan-Korea relationship and build a U.S.-Japan-Korea relationship. 
but they've always sort of gone two steps forward and then eventually five steps back. And this last happened in 2015 when Tony Blinken, in fact, was one of the architects of trying to bring Japan and Korea together then, and it failed ultimately. And so now, eight years later, I think this one is more likely to stick. And the Camp David Summit is really about trying to make it more difficult for Japan and Korea to go back towards the focus on historical issues that they've often had and to try and force them both into the future. And we can talk a little bit about some of what they're going to announce today, but it's a pretty substantial agenda. And is it as simplistic as saying this is just the result of the ascendancy of China on the geopolitical stage within Southeast Asia and their projection of power into the region? I do think China is playing a big role here. And if you look at Japan and Korea, for a long time, if you did polling in the two countries, you would find that the people in Japan and Korea didn't trust each other at all. But the only good news now is they trust China less. And that is pushing them together. And the U.S.'s two key treaty allies in Northeast Asia, it's Japan and South Korea, and we just need them to be able to work together. So that has sort of been maybe a necessary condition, but certainly not sufficient. What has made all the difference in the last year is the leadership, in particular, I would say, of South Korea's president, Yoon Suk-yeol. And President Yoon has taken some pretty remarkable political risks to try and push forward ties with Japan. Took a while for Tokyo to respond, but ultimately I think the Japanese side and Prime Minister Kishida realized that Yoon Suk-yeol is very serious about this. So a lot of this also comes down to leadership. Trilateral cooperation isn't that popular yet in Seoul in particular, but also in Tokyo. And so that's something that all the three leaders are going to need to address so that this doesn't sort of fall back to where the relationship has been for decades. Yeah, it it seems like we have this Camp David summit with South Korea and Japan going on. And then meanwhile, we've also got the quad, as it's referred to, with Australia and India. So is this kind of broader question of U.S. policy in Southeast Asia? Under Obama, there was a real pivot to the Pacific. Their thought was that this was going to be the major theater of conflict within the next generation. Is this an effort to continue to hem in and contain China's ambitions in the region? So I don't think it's an effort to contain China's ambitions, but I do think it's an effort to shape Chinese behavior and to demonstrate to Beijing that some of what China has been doing, pressing so hard on countries in the region, is having a negative effect for China, right? A positive one, frankly, for the United States. And I do, this wouldn't have been possible if South Korea and Japan hadn't been targeted by Chinese economic coercion campaigns in the last decade or so. So China really went after South Korea in 2016 and 2017 economically. And it's done the same thing against Japan in a couple of uh, cases, even a few years before that. So that has, I think, forced leaders in both Seoul and Tokyo to say, look, we can't just deal with this on our own or else we're going to get picked off. We actually have to work together. And if we don't work together, we know what's going to happen. That's been going on elsewhere, too. We're seeing the Philippines work more with the U.S. right now for that reason. We're seeing Australia through both the Quad that you mentioned, but also the Australia-United Kingdom-U.S. arrangement called AUKUS. The submarine Um, thing. Right, exactly. The submarine deal. So it isn't happening with every country in Asia. I want to be clear. There probably are six or seven countries in Asia that are sort of 
watching what China's doing and I think reacting by doubling down on their relationship with the US or with others in Asia. But it's a pretty clear trend now. And so, yeah, I think it's a pretty remarkable development and just shows you how far China has overreached in the last few years. Well, and that's really the dynamic I want to explore with you. One of them is you referenced the economic initiatives in 16 and 17. I'd like to unpack those a little bit more just to understand what the mechanism was. But we're speaking now in a world where China is demonstrating some really terrible demographic challenges. They're having deflation issues in their economy. And there's a lot of concern that this property bubble, this tech bubble that they propped up over the last cycle is falling apart. So given what the economic issues were before, how does that play into the broader geopolitical and military ambitions that China has? It's a fascinating question, and I think we don't know yet. I could tell you two completely different stories. So the first story is that a China that is growing really fast, right, is going to have broader ambitions than a China that is growing more slowly and doesn't have as much money to throw around on the Belt and Road Initiative or to put into its military. And so maybe a China that's growing more slowly is going to be focused more domestically, focused on economic issues, and therefore poses less of a challenge internationally. On the other hand, I could show you lots of political science research that suggests that when autocratic systems are under real pressure, sometimes they rely more on nationalism. And what better way to get nationalist fervor in a country than to claim that you're being attacked or coerced by foreign countries, probably by the United States in, in China's case, and to then try and use nationalism to hold the country together. And therefore, you might think that lashing out is more likely. This is something that a lot of China experts debate. And I'd say the field is completely split. And part of the reason is we know very little, actually, about how China responds to these kinds of downturns, and really nothing about how China has responded in the last couple of decades, because China hasn't had a downturn in basically 40 years, right? 35, maybe. So we don't have data on this. And much of the China community feels pretty confident that they understand how the Chinese system works, but they're not confident that they understand how Xi Jinping thinks and how he works. And so I think we've got to be sort of preparing for both of these possibilities, right? A weak, inward-looking China, but also a weak, more aggressive, and, and even maybe more brittle China. I think both are possible. Yeah, this is exactly the question that I ponder when I read the news is the Russia experiment of trying to consolidate national unity this is an old tactic, right, that's been used oftentimes is the best way to create self-identity is to say we are not like these people. And so you attack Ukraine because you say it's NATO is encroaching on your territory. Thought process being that it boosts your political acumen and good things happen domestically. That hasn't really worked out for Russia. <laughs> but I do think Taiwan is a different animal, right, than Ukraine. What I mean, I'm asking you an impossible question, but what side of the camp are you on? Do you think this makes things more likely that there will be more aggression in, in Taiwan or do you think this will make China back off? So I guess my bias is to think that I think you're right that Taiwan is different, right? Taiwan is different for a bunch of reasons, but one is that if you're Xi Jinping, and the Communist Party's deal with the Chinese people for decades has basically been that you have to sacrifice some 
political freedoms. Frankly, right now, a lot of political freedoms. But what you get back is economic growth. And, and let's be candid, the growth has been pretty remarkable, right? And it's not that the Communist Party has delivered all of that. Really, the Chinese people have delivered it. But the double digit economic GDP year over year growth, it's right. like on un- un- historical anomaly compared to everything else, even the Industrial Absolutely. Revolution. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, right. Like 30 years of 10% growth. And oh, by the way, if you lived in a coastal province, the, the growth in many of those years was closer to 15% than 10%, right? And that's year on year for almost four decades in some cases. That's unbelievably good. But now the growth numbers for this year, the optimists are saying 5%. I think it's probably going to be a bit lower. And even a lot of the China experts who have been very bullish on the Chinese economy for decades are saying, actually, it's not just a short-term issue, right? It's a long-term issue for the Chinese economy. They're projecting maybe 3% growth over the next decade on average. I don't think we know how the Chinese people are going to respond to this, right? I mean, somebody my age would basically not remember a time when there wasn't 10% growth and now they're at 3% growth maybe. It's just hard to know how they'll react. I think one reaction would be to say, well, let's look at other systems that seem to be working better than ours. Now, an argument the Communist Party often makes is that, well, democracy isn't suited to China for some reason, right? Either because there's some ethnic reason that Chinese people can't accept democracy, or that China is just too big to be governed in this way. I think there are two challenges to that. One is if you see Taiwan, right, which Chinese people in China think is mostly Chinese people in Taiwan, even though people in Taiwan increasingly see themselves as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. I think that sort of pops the bubble of this argument that, oh, Chinese people for some reason can't have a flourishing democracy. I mean, frankly, The idea that you can't have a billion people in a democracy is also a bubble that could be popped by India if India is succeeding as well. So I do think there is a logic for Xi Jinping to really up the ante on Taiwan and increase the pressure. But my hope is that we can demonstrate a strong enough deterrent to Xi that taking actual military action against Taiwan will be seen as just too risky. So I think the likelihood is that tensions are going to be higher over the next decade on around the um, Taiwan Strait, but that doesn't mean that deterrence is going to fail in my view. Yeah, I, I am torn on this issue. I think they've created this pretty substantial middle class that has expectations of economic growth with yeah. their children. And you're seeing all these terrible headlines. And it's very hard to trust the numbers that come out of there. But you hear these the numbers, right? The numbers that come out, right? right. Just yesterday, they said they're not going to release a whole range of numbers, in, including some of the youth unemployment numbers. Right, so, right, right. yeah. But so uh, the numbers that are coming out may not be reliable, and there may be fewer of them coming out in the first place. But apparently, it's this just horrendous job market for these young yeah. college graduates. And you and I both know that a an estranged middle class and a very angry youth environment is not great for any political situation, even though she does seem to have a stranglehold on things. But I don't know if that augurs for or against movement. And then there's this broader question. And your writing is very interesting because you do get very granular, whereas some of the New York Times or Wall Street Journal does not. Like, we don't have a mutual defense agreement with Taiwan. We have one with Japan. But this summit that's going on today does not go as far as an article 
three of NATO type situation, there's a pledge, but there's no like legal right. requirement to defend each other. So it just kind of makes things even more complicated, honestly, in my mind, to try to keep all these things straight with the US is doing. Do you think this is the right strategy in terms of how the Biden administration is approaching all of these different alliances and, and strategies? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I'll just say two things. First, I, I think you're right to point out the differences in the treaties that we have, right? So we have basically six formal treaty alliances, NATO, which is the big one that everyone always focuses on. But then we've got five bilateral treaty allies in Asia. So Japan, South Korea, Australia, Thailand, and the Philippines. We used to have another, right? We used to have up until 1979, a formal treaty with Taiwan, really with the Republic of China. And that treaty used to have a mutual defense commitment, right? That we would come to Taiwan's aid. When that was done away with in the 70s, we replaced it with what are some pretty ambiguous commitments, right? In the Taiwan Relations Act, in these three communiques that the US had with China, and then in six assurances that the US provided to Taiwan. So it is pretty unclear, even to serious experts, some of whom were in the room at the time when these uh, negotiations were ongoing, exactly what the US has committed to with Taiwan. And I, I do think that's a real challenge. And I'm not one who thinks that we should have a very clear commitment to everything. There Sometimes there's a saying that if you draw enough red lines and they get crossed over, you've created a red carpet. So I think if we're going to draw red lines, we have to be absolutely serious about enforcing them. And I'm not sure that some of the people that want to draw red lines on Taiwan are quite so serious about enforcing them, which is a challenge. But but you're right that what we're going to see coming out of this of the summit today is a what they're calling a commitment to consult that Japan, South Korea, and the United States would have a commitment to consult with each other in the event of a threat to peace and security, which is pretty clearly directed both at North Korea and at China. The second thing I was going to say is. I think a lot of what the Biden team is doing makes sense. So they've said that they have sort of three pillars of their approach. They're calling it invest, align, and compete, invest in U.S. strength, align with allies and partners, and then compete with China. I think the first two of those, no one's really going to argue with, right? Of course, we should be trying to strengthen ourselves and work closely with our friends. The question is how we do the competition with China part most effectively. And there, I think it's still not actually clear what the Biden administration's ultimate objective is, what it is that they want the US-China relationship to look like at the end of the day. They bounce around. Sometimes they say, well, the era of engagement is over, but then we're sending a whole bunch of cabinet members to Beijing. And so I think it's that last part where the Biden team is probably a little bit divided on exactly what they want from Beijing. Well, and this is a purely political exercise, right? And so you have to take into context the fact that we have just exited two 20-year wars with not great outcomes. There's a lot of fatigue amongst my generation, I'm 41, yeah. of entering into boots on the ground in foreign countries with no real like immediate connectivity with America. And what would success look like in that type of interaction, right? And we're also kind of 
undergoing this process through the Biden administration and through legislation of Congress of reshoring and nearshoring microchip facilities back to the U.S., which really is a hedge of our bets against having to step in with Taiwan. I mean, it just is what it is. Yeah. And I think part of what you're pointing at is actually no one, this is true of the Biden team, it was true of the Trump team, has made a really clear argument for why Taiwan matters to like normal Americans. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Strategically, and, aside from the chip manufacturing, right? Like, why would we have boots on the ground there? Yeah. Just, I mean, I, I don't wish for any ill will on the Taiwanese people, but I don't see what strategic advantage it would have for us in, this, in the Southeast Asia arena. I think there are four arguments, but I, one of the problems is that not any of those four on their own is strong enough that you could really build a consensus around it, in my view, right? So you mentioned one, which is the tech issue, right? That I've got an iPhone here and it's got a TSMC chip powering it. And that TSMC chip is made in Taiwan. I'd like to be able to keep buying iPhones. So there's an argument, right, that our society would sort of screech to a halt if we lost access to some of the technology that comes from Taiwan. So that's one argument. But again, I don't think that is convincing for most Americans as a reason why we should necessarily fight a conflict. A second issue is you'll hear a lot of people say, well, Taiwan is a flourishing democracy and we shouldn't let that get snuffed out by autocratic ruler. And I agree with that. But look, the U.S. doesn't fight for every democracy around the world. So, so the question is, like, why is Taiwan more important than some of the other democracies that have come under threat? I think a third argument is that Taiwan is just a close economic partner of the U.S., right? depending on what you're looking at, something like our 10th largest two-way trade partner. And so there would be a huge economic impact on the United States. And then the last one is that Taiwan has some strategic value, right? That as we were talking about, we've got treaty alliances with Japan and the Philippines, which are right next to Taiwan. And it might be hard to uphold those treaty alliances if China was physically in, in control of the island of Taiwan. Now, I think all four of those arguments are true to some degree, but I'll just tell you, and I'd be interested in, in your view on this, Brian, that when I go and talk to groups in Ohio or Arizona, none of those arguments are particularly convincing on their own, right? I think it's really hard to get broad-based support for Taiwan just based on that by itself. Yeah, again, I can only speak for my, my personal experience and the folks that I kind of have in my circle. But I think I think the fatigue associated with Iraq and Afghanistan is so high. And you look at just the blood and treasure we spent in those places with no real outcome. There was no definition of what success would look like. And entanglement with China seems to be a really low down case scenario type setup for us. And I'm also a little bit biased. My brother-in-law is an Annapolis guy. And so I know a lot of Naval Academy people and I've had a lot of Naval experts on the show. There's a real debate today whether we would even win on a sea battle basis in China. And so I don't know if we would want to poke the bear, even if we had Korea. I mean, Japan's got an impressive Navy, but I don't know if we're the if we have primacy there anymore from a naval perspective, and so there's real doubt I think within the defense community 
of whether we would be able to go toe to toe with these folks today. I mean, we're at this, I think from a naval vessel standpoint and a tonnage standpoint, the Navy's the smallest it's been since before World War II. And I think this is really tough, right? So I totally agree with you. The US doesn't have primacy in East Asia anymore, right? And we can quibble about like, how do you define primacy exactly? But here's the bottom line. China has a larger Navy than the United States and the US Navy has global responsibilities and China's really focused on a very small portion of the world, right? And so I think we have to understand that this doesn't look like anything that we've been dealing with in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? If we get into a conflict with China, all of our facilities are going to come under attack, right? All of our people in the region are going to be under threat. It is a totally different kind of contingency, much larger, much bloodier, much riskier than anything we've dealt with in decades. I mean, probably going back to the Korean War, if not World War II. So the challenges here, I totally agree, are incredibly serious. Now, I think what is good for us is that China, if it tries to invade Taiwan, is picking about the hardest thing you can do militarily in the world. They are trying to invade an island, which is tough. It's 100 miles away from the Chinese coast. It's been preparing for this invasion for 80 years, and it's backed by not just the Taiwan military, which is not sufficient on its own probably to defend Taiwan, but potentially by the world's number one largest military, and by Japan, which in a couple of years could be the third largest defense spender in the world also. And perhaps even a couple of others might lend a, a hand. So I think for China, the challenge here is, yes, the military balance has really shifted in Beijing's favor over the last few decades. But that, in my view, may still not be enough for them to accomplish the goal of taking Taiwan. It might, however, be enough for them to put in place a blockade of Taiwan or to seize some of these small islands that are are outlying islands that are actually closer to the Chinese mainland than they are to the main Taiwan island that we used to call Formosa. So these are some really tough scenarios for us. And in some ways, the invasion scenario from a military perspective is actually the easiest one of the three. Yeah, I think a, a blockade scenario is pretty realistic. And then it gets you, if you follow that kind of through line, if we stop exporting energy and food to China, that's a real problem for them, right? They have a huge energy deficiency. They've been relying on Russia. Russia's capacity is diminishing. And so you've got to really worry about their ability to feed and, and to energize their economy if we were to close them out. And Japan has a similar challenge, right? That's why yeah. they have historically been so aggressive in the region is they don't have the ability to produce enough food and energy for their own population. And so with this like huge cascade effect, while I have you on the show, I want to kind of lean on your expertise. So let's talk about kind of command and control today in Southeast Asia. We have boots on the ground in Japan, South Korea, and Guam, right? But where is the hub? Like if things were going to go sideways, who's making these calls and where are they located? That's a great question. I'm not sure we know. My guess is that the hard decisions would be made in Washington and, and in Hawaii. Theoretically, the combatant command that is in charge is based in Hawaii. It's the Indo-Pacific Command. The head of that command is a four-star admiral, and he would really be in charge of the war fighting. But I think there would be a lot of political restrictions placed on him, and those restrictions would come from Washington. And if you thought there was some micromanagement of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? 
could the U.S. strike the Chinese mainland? I don't think that's a decision being made in Hawaii. I think that's a decision being made in the Oval Office or the White House Situation Room. So the most important decisions would be made pretty clearly in in Washington and in Hawaii. The question that I think you're leading to, though, is, well, who's actually commanding the forces on the ground, right? So we just finished talking about how challenging this environment would be and that all forces in the region would be at risk. I mean, we don't even know for sure that the U.S. would have good communications with a lot of its forces in the region, especially all the way back to Hawaii, right? You could have interference with satellite systems. So there are a bunch of different options. There's a Seventh Fleet commander who is in Japan, who has a flagship that he usually commands from, which is based in Yokosuka, which is basically the harbor around Tokyo. He might be in charge of some of that war fight. There's the three, third Marine Expeditionary Force, 3MEF, which is based in Okinawa. They would probably be in charge potentially of some of this fight. There's also the Air Force, which is has the 5th Air Force in Yokota, Japan. All of these commanders would be playing a critical role, but we actually don't know exactly how they would interface, for example, with Japanese counterparts or others. And so this is one of the things we've just got to get straight. I think usually if you ask a commander at Indo-Pacific Command who should be in charge, they say, me, which I get. But I think as an American, I think it might make sense for us to have a forward commander who's a little closer to the region and maybe is co-located with their Japanese counterpart. And right now, the Congress has been asking a lot of questions about how this would work. And I don't think they're particularly satisfied with the answers they've been getting. Yeah, like I said, I've had some experts on here who have been observers of these war games. And it seems 50-50, like sometimes the U.S., manages to make it out okay. Other times, not so much. That's not a great outcome. The flip side is China has not really been involved in a major conflict in 50 years, right? There hasn't really been a major naval sea battle since World War II. And so the technology is so different now. It's just fascinating to armchair quarterback this thing because there's so many unknowns. And especially on the naval side of things, there just hasn't been much conflict. And you throw Russia in with their submarine abilities, which apparently are much more advanced than ours today. And so there's just a lot of unknowns. And and to your point, it seems like from a congressional perspective, they've been defunding a lot of these efforts that the Pentagon has been trying to put forth, probably for political issues, but given the boondoggles that occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Navy continues to feel short-shrifted here. And I'm glad to hear that people in Capitol Hill are are trying to change that potentially, at least ask some hard questions here. Yeah, and what I worry about a lot here is there are two different questions. One is whether China could win a conflict, and the other is whether they think they could win a conflict. And I think the likelihood that they think they could win the conflict is probably higher than the likelihood that they could actually win the conflict for the reason you mentioned, right? They haven't been in a major war since 1979. And oh, by the way, they lost that one to Vietnam. So if you're Xi Jinping, I think you should be a little cautious going into this. But If we've learned anything from watching Vladimir Putin the last year and a half, it's that when you're a dictator, no one wants to tell you bad news. And so you may really end up with Xi Jinping, just like Putin did, overestimating the capabilities of his forces and having no one that's willing to be honest with him that they just can't do something. And so I worry a lot that actually, maybe if we get into the fight, we can educate 
Xi Jinping and his lieutenants that they're not quite as good as they think. But ideally, we'd want to avoid the fight entirely. And the only way to do that is to convince them beforehand that they're not as good as they think. And that's really tough to do. So along those lines, are there other actors in the region that we should try to get deeper engagement with that could help just be an overwhelming force against China trying some type of incursion here? I So my view is that getting as many players on board as possible is great and having Japan and Australia and India is not going to take part in a Taiwan contingency, but it could hold down some Chinese forces, right, in the Himalayas, which could distract Chinese enough to be helpful. Or even some of the Europeans it wouldn't have a huge presence, but it, it wouldn't hurt, right? I'm just not sure, though, that would fundamentally change Beijing's decision-making calculus. I think they're really watching the U.S., and trying to understand what we would do on Taiwan, and probably watching Japan also, because they know that we need access to facilities in Japan. Now, if we have access to the Philippines, that gives us a little bit more diversification. It makes it harder for the Chinese to do a quick first strike on our bases. That matters a little bit too. So do some of the Pacific Islands, actually, where we have some airfields. But I think in Beijing, my guess is that what really matters to them is, number one, the US, number two, to and a far away to Japan and everything after that, I, I don't even know if it would really matter in Xi Jinping's calculus. So as we kind of round out the conversation, you globally from a high level generally agree with the strategy of not containment so much as just making that decision appear to be very painful for China, continue to engage with them. What would you like to see or what would you advocate for moving forward from a policy perspective? So the piece that I think is missing from a policy perspective is I don't think we actually have articulated what our end state is with China. We say this was true of both the Trump administration and the Biden team. We say that our strategy is not predicated on any change in the form of government, which is a nice way of saying that we are not trying to collapse the Communist Party. But then at the same time, the Biden team and the Trump team both said that this era of engagement is over, that China is not going to be a responsible stakeholder in the current system. So as an observer, that kind of leaves me a little bit confused. We're saying China is not going to be a responsible player in the system, but we're not trying to make any fundamental changes in China. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm not somebody who thinks that we should be pushing actively for regime change in China, but I do think that China is totally different than the Soviet Union. But in this respect, I think there's a similarity, which is that in the Cold War, what we said was that we were hoping for the mellowing of the Soviet Union, of really the Communist Party, uh, or the breakup. And eventually we got the breakup. I think that's a pretty fair assessment of where many Americans would hope China will eventually go, right? Not today or tomorrow. So this is a very long-term objective. But I think if we're going to build support among Americans for a China strategy, we actually have to say where we're trying to go. And strategy, people say, is about connecting ends and ways and means. But right now, we actually don't have an end. Competition is not an end. Competition is just a description of where we are at the moment. So the big part I'd like to see is a clear description, either from the Biden team or whoever comes next, of ultimately what their objective is, what it is they're trying to do on China. Um, we've got to do it carefully so that we build the consensus within the domestic populace in the U.S. and with our allies and partners. But I, I think that's something we could do if we set our minds about it. Yeah, it seems muddled at best. And, and kind of, I like your kind of parallel to the Soviet Union. Be careful what you wish for. People advocated for that fall. And what's the 
I think the analogy was like we had one headed snake that turned into a hundred headed snake. That's right. Yeah. And it's at least they were keeping all of these other bad actors at bay, or at least there was one person to talk to when you pick up the phone. And that's kind of the challenge with Europe, right? The old joke is like, if you want to have diplomacy with Europe, who do you call? Yeah. And so I'm not saying that she is kind of this great person running a wonderful place, but you'd be careful what you wish for. And I think the same thing goes for Russia today. If Putin were to go away, I mean, God knows who would step into his place. You could be, you could really regret that choice in terms of who would pop up and replace that power back. And there's a bunch of political science literature that shows pretty convincingly that actually the most dangerous kinds of states are not autocratic states. It's young democracies, like in the first 10 years of their transition to democracy, because it turns out, as our founders knew, that the people may not always have the best idea of how to govern themselves. And especially in the formative years of a democracy, it's very easy to sort of turn people left and right very quickly. And as a result, democracies can actually be some of the most young democracies can be some of the most warlike governments. So I'm not suggesting that we should want China to be democratic tomorrow. But I do think we have to be able to articulate what the theory of victory is ultimately, right? We have to be able to say what changes we think would be necessary to get the US and China to a place where we could actually have stability. And I, I don't think we've been able to do that yet. So that this is a good task for people in think tanks where we can write <laughs> essays about this and no one will read them, but we can assert that we were right and people should have listened. No, I read them. They're, I think they're fascinating and, and super informative, especially when you read kind of the mainstream media or you hear things, the context that I think you provide is really helpful. So along those lines, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for everyone listening. It was a terrific conversation. We'll have to do another one, see what we got right and wrong in six months or something. <laughs> if people are interested in engaging with you and your work product, the thoughts that you're putting out there, what's the best way for them to connect? Yeah, so probably the AEI website. So you can just go to www.aei.org and my work's up there under Zach Cooper somewhere. You can probably find it. And I've got a book hopefully coming out next year and a, a long report on some of this in, in a couple of weeks. So if people are on the lookout for uh, these issues, hopefully we'll have that stuff out soon. Yeah, we'll have to have you on to, to go into the book. We'd love to stay abreast of that. And then a question that we ask people to come on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Exercise before my children wake up. This is my- <laughs> Early, early. Okay. Yes, early. Yeah. yeah. When it's still slightly quiet, that's my only tiny bit of peace. Uh, after they wake up, all hell breaks loose. Chaos reigns. Yeah. That's right. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate all the work you're doing. We'll have to, back, have to come, come back on when the book comes out and uh, take care. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.